Hello, and welcome to Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. I'm Melissa Pitati, and this podcast is part of an initiative I'm working on with Marianne Clements, which is being hosted by the CHS Alliance. Our work looks at the intersection between mental health, people management, and organizational culture using the lens of care and compassion. Today, you'll hear me talk with Roger Perry, Director of Agenda Consulting. He knows the CHS Alliance from its previous incarnation before People in Aid and HAP, the Humanitarian Accounting Partnership, merged. I wanted to talk with him because I keep hearing over and over how important data is if we want to address well-being and culture issues in our sector. His organization has been running staff well-being and culture surveys for many organizations in our sector. In this conversation, you'll hear what he's been seeing as organizations ask staff how they're coping during trying times, looking at issues like well-being, culture, diversity and inclusion, and respectful workplace, the impact of leaders increasing their communication with staff, the power of using surveys to learn about your organization's health and compare it with peers, and a thought experiment of what it could look like if we in the aid sector use these time-tested survey tools to track well-being and culture in the future over time. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So here we go. Welcome, Roger Perry. Thank you very much to Melissa. Nice to be with you. Nice to be with you. Uh, for our listeners, I would like to introduce you and then give you a chance to fill in the blanks if there are any. Uh, Roger, you are the founder of Agenda Consulting. You've worked since 1985 in the public and not-for-profit sectors as a management consultant, eight years with Price Waterhouse Coopers, and a similar period with Compass Partnership. You've worked with boards, chief executives, and senior managers in a variety of sectors, including social care, housing, international development, associations, and unions, central government, and non-departmental public bodies. I don't know what that is, but you could tell me later. <laughs> um, you've worked internationally in places like Kenya, South Africa, and in Tanzania, where you started and led a new consultancy practice for PricewaterhouseCoopers for two years. You have an MBA from London Business School and a BA in mathematics from Oxford. Uh, would you like to add anything? Well, thank you, Melissa. That's, uh, that sort of gets us up to probably about 15 years ago. And then <laughs> sort of since then, um, since starting Agenda, which has been um, my last sort of 15 years uh, where I'm director, we've been focusing um, on engagement uh, in its broadest terms, working with uh, both um, international NGOs, uh, UN agencies uh, and UK nonprofits uh, on a range of different uh, surveys in particular and engagement in well-being and increasingly now diversity, inclusion and respectful workplace. So that's our world. Um, yeah, I think that brings it up to date. Thank you. Anything else you think our listeners should know about you before we dive in? <laughs> I don't know. Crack on, I think. And if there are things that you uh, want to ask, then please do. Okay. So um, I got to know a bit about Agenda Consulting when I was doing some research for the Working Well report that I co-authored with Mary Ann Clements for the CHS Alliance, 
It was a paper called Navigating to the Next UN, A Journey Full of Potential. It was put together by the Young UN and they partnered with you to engage with people in the UN that were relatively young. And I, I appreciated very much the level of analysis and how deep you went. So maybe just to start things, would you mind telling us a little bit about your experience working with them? Yeah, Young UN are a great um, uh, outfit. They are a, uh, if you like, a sort of pressure group within the UN system, uh, focusing mostly, I think, on UN staff uh, of sort of under 30, 35. They've been going for three or four years now. And they are, have an expanding membership um, uh, across the globe, across the UN agencies. Um, and are interested in uh, supporting, uh, uh, you know, a pro developing a program uh, of articulating uh, the UN that they want to see. Uh, we've run a couple of surveys with them. Uh, they have been very uh, involved and hands-on and done quite a bit of analysis themselves. And the most recent survey results they took forward and presented it to uh, the Under Secretary General of the UN uh, herself. Um, so I think they get, they've, they've managed to get quite a bit of traction and quite a bit of profile. Uh, and um, it's been an absolute pleasure um, partnering with them uh, to support that activity. Excellent. And uh, taking a look at your clients, it's interesting that uh, not only do you engage with UN agencies, you also have uh, many non-governmental organizations, you have international organizations, so you have NGOs, you have Red Cross, Red Crescent, IFRC, um, similar constellation that we see in alliances like the CHS Alliance. Do you want to talk a little bit about your client base? Yeah, very much so. Thank you, Melissa. In, in many ways, actually, our, our NGOs are our sort of core uh, of, um, of agenda. Uh, when we set up, which was in 2002, our sort of core client base really were, were UK-based, because um, we're based in Oxford in the UK, uh, UK-based uh, non-profits, and that included uh, NGOs. Um, and then we've developed our work uh, more internationally and our work with NGOs right across the, uh, the globe um, and, uh, and the UN, as, as mentioned. So we work really in sort of four main sectors, um, uh, international NGOs, uh, wherever, wherever they're based, uh, UN agencies, uh, other international organisations, people like the International Criminal Court, uh, and then the UK uh, voluntary sector, not-for-profit sector. I think within the NGO space, we've worked with quite a good range actually from very large uh, NGOs with tens of thousands of staff globally uh, to you know much smaller agencies uh, as well. Um, so we're we de delighted to, to do that. Excellent. Sometimes we work with a global entity and sometimes we just might be working for you know, a particular affiliate or national organization in a particular country. So, yeah. oh, okay. Um, I didn't realize till today that you had connection to people in aid, uh, was a forerunner to CHS Alliance. CHS Alliance uh, was a merger between people in aid and HAP. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, very much so. We, um, people in aid got in touch with us very early days, actually, back probably back in 2004, after we published some benchmarking data. Um, ben Emmons and Jonathan Potter were the leading lights in those days. 
And I was, um, we partnered up with on them on a number of different things. And I was so excited and pleased to see people in AIDS development um, as a really effective um, HR hub uh, within the sector, not only handling the uh, aspects of, um, uh, you know, of, uh, of uh, taking people through the accreditation process for the code, but also just being a great a hub for learning, sharing, knowledge, you know, good practice sharing. We've, uh, we, we did various things, um, this is quite a number of years ago now, probably 10 or 12 years ago, developing some standard surveys, engagement surveys for those organisations that wanted to go through the code, uh, partnering on various projects um, and um, yeah, sharing, sharing observations. Uh, so we, we had a very, uh, a great relationship with people in aid. I think the move to the CHS Alliance um, has made a lot of sense, is my sense that it's all strategically, rather than asking NGOs to sort of go through all these different hoops, but to make it to one, one overall process. Um, and we're delighted to sort of continue uh, uh, some of the work we've done before with, with the CHS Alliance, if that's possible. Excellent. Uh, one thing that drew me to the core humanitarian standard was commitment eight regards um, how staff are treated and how they are supported to do good work, quality and effective work, and uh, an organizational responsibility to uh, duty of care to the well-being of staff. And here, um, something that is quite interesting to explore is your work uh, looking specifically at well-being um, through engagement surveys and the like. Could you tell us a little bit about um, what you do and why you think it's important in that regard? Sure, thank you. Um, yes, as you say, we've, uh, one of the areas which we work a lot is the engagement survey. Um, and this is often a survey of sort of perhaps 40, 50 or 60 questions, which uh, uh, we design with a particular agency. And it usually covers a number of different topics, engagement and leadership and communications and so forth. Uh, just about all our clients uh, consider that well-being is uh, a, an important topic uh, that they want to ask uh, in the survey. They're keen to find out how people uh, experience work. They're keen to find out about people's work-life balance. They're keen to find out about levels of work load, they're keen to find out about levels of stress, they're keen to find out about uh, aspects of job security or job insecurity. Um, and they, they want to find this out because they know that well-being has a big impact on all of our performance. You know, if, uh, if we're being expected to perform well, to deliver great products and great services to, to our beneficiaries, then we need to be in a good place ourselves. Um, so, um, well-being as a topic is a topic that we've been covering uh, in our engagement service for many years. I think what's perhaps newer for us is some of our work over the last year, in particular with International Criminal Court, who are one of our engagement survey clients, who uh, obviously in their work cover a lot of very distressing uh, material um, as many NGOs do, particularly in the human rights space, where one's looking at accounts, um, very harrowing accounts, perhaps witness accounts of particular happenings as part of the evidence gathering. And we've been um, developing with the International Criminal Court a wellbeing survey 
covering a number of different aspects uh, of mental health broadly uh, and using a number of internationally recognized validated questionnaires uh, in so doing. So from our perspective, we're very much on a learning curve. Um, I hope that came over on the webinar you uh, came to last, last, last week. But what we've learned uh, is that um, uh, there's a very good well-being measure called the WHO5, the World Health Organization 5, which is itself a result of years of work at WHO5 as a well-being measure. And it's only got five questions and they boiled it down to the five key questions, which I think was originally much, much longer than 20 and then perhaps down to 10. Um, there are a range of different questionnaires on recognized questionnaires on anxiety, on post-traumatic stress, on post um, uh, post, uh, uh, you know, and other uh, uh, and other uh, factors too. Um, uh, and uh, what we are excited about is um, using some of these uh, questionnaires, uh, start gathering some data, and start gathering some benchmarking data. So, what we feel is this at the moment, perhaps particularly prompted by COVID, there's such an interest in well-being in how. Uh, all of our well-being is affected, uh, whether it's, you know, we're um, simply working at home uh, and some of the implications of working at home or, or whether it's we're working in, you know, very difficult environments with very difficult, you know, difficult um, uh, subject matters. Um, and there are, I think, real opportunities for using some well-recognised questionnaires, a large scale, uh, to help organizations uh, understand their well-being and also understand how it compares with other similar organizations. And that is so important because, as we all know, well-being is affected by many factors. Yes, absolutely, it's affected by um, the nature of the work. If you're translating harrowing accounts um, from witnesses of terrible things that they've seen, that's going to have a big impact on you potentially. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, the nature of the work, your particular role in it, but also uh, well-being is also hugely affected by your organisation and by the way in which you're managed, the way in which you're supported, the way in which um, your leadership and your organisation is led. Um, and so it's a multiplicity of factors and certainly the work that we did when we involved 15 UN agencies in summer 2020 uh, to look at well-being using a WHO5, we found that the ratio, there was a big range um, from the 15 agencies, from the, the, the level of healthiness in the top agency was double uh, in, the, in the lowest agency. So that's just showing how important culture uh, and leadership and organizational constructs are uh, to people's well-being. It makes a big difference. And so, uh, that takes us just into some really interesting territory in trying to help understand that and help organizations manage well-being more effectively. I find it so interesting that you could compare across agencies the concept of well-being. Um, I think you called it in the webinar benchmarking. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit more? Because I've, I've felt in my interviews with people in this sector there's almost uh, a feeling of, well, my organization is unique because yeah. <laughs> we yeah. have our special circumstances because this, that, and the other. Um, so could you talk about this notion of being able to look at something and compare across organizations and still have confidence that you could say, look, you're doing uh, at this level compared to these others. 
I think in general terms with surveys, there's just so much, so many advantages of taking a similar approach across a number of organizations. I think in some ways it, there's obviously every organization is of course different. Their own circumstances are different. And I think running a survey isn't about telling an organization you're good or bad. It's not about telling an organization what uh, to do or being at all arrogant like that, because that's not where we come from at all. But I think that um, if you can use some similar questions across a number of agencies, uh, you get so much more comparisons and agencies can then begin to see where they, they fit and then start begin to ask interesting questions. So methodologically, uh, there's a lot of sense in using similar questions. And also from a sort of, if you like, the economics of running a survey, just, you know, uh, you, you set up a survey once, uh, there are very few costs for every respondent, virtually zero. You can then share those costs against uh, across a much wider range of agencies who will partner up on the same basis. So I don't think the external benchmarking or comparison is, is all of it, but I think it helps provide insight. If you discover that 62% of your people have good well-being, that's step one. Great. We know that the majority of our people have good well-being. But then if you discover that, you know, the average across the sector is 70%, uh, you might think, oh, we're a bit lower. And then that might take you into, well, what are the organizations who are getting higher scores on this? What are they doing? And that might take you into good practice learning. It might you take you into some workshops and some conferences where, they, you know, where it takes you into some good learning. Without that sense of a similar measure, kind of, that you can compare yourself. You just don't get any sense of how you're doing. Um, and there could be a risk of complacency in some ways of saying, well, we do 60%, 2%, that's pretty good. Um, so I do think that that cross-agency um, benchmarking using similar questions, a similar methodology really adds a, a lot of, um, adds a lot to the process of reflection and learning, uh, which of course is what this is all about because this isn't about anything other than helping agencies learn and provide a greater experience and better well-being for their people. Indeed. Uh, I know one of the questions you must get a lot is how often should you do a survey or engagement uh, to be able to track over time how your employees' well-being has evolved? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. I think the, wor the, the world of surveys is changing quite rapidly at the moment, particularly actually um, from COVID. So I think the traditional approach was to run a sort of full engagement survey every two years. That's what many of our clients did. They said, well, you know, we don't want to run it every year, maybe because we won't necessarily have had time to engage with the conclusions. We'll run it every two years on a regular basis. And I think that's worked. I think what's been happening in the world of surveys has been the, the, the realization that actually a lot of stuff happens within that two years. And it might be new initiatives, it might be new um, uh, strategies or policies. And actually, you want to find out much more quickly uh, how well those have landed, how people are, uh, are feeling. And so from that has come the concept of the pulse survey, which is a shorter survey, usually up to 15 questions or so, um, which might be run much more frequently. Every three months, every six months uh, is a typical frequency. Personally, I think the full survey still has a role. Uh, and I think for many organizations, they might like to do 
perhaps a full survey covering a wide range of topics every perhaps two years, and then have pulse surveys, which are being much more agile and responsive to the issues uh, in hand. And obviously COVID's been a big one this year. So many of our clients have been running pulse surveys wanting to find out how their people are experiencing all the changes, working from home, are they isolated, how are they handling you know, school-aged children, all those things. So there's been an explosion of pulse surveys this year with COVID. And I think that's underlined the appropriateness of, of the shorter, more frequent pulse surveys. I think wellbeing surveys, the frequency may well depend a little bit on, on the difference. I think, as I said, you might do a large survey and have some stuff on wellbeing. You might even do a specific wellbeing survey. If your results are less good, you perhaps might follow up a bit more frequently, put some measures in place and see if that's working. Um, perhaps put some measures in place and check in six months time, perhaps might be a good frequency. If your results are very strong, you might perhaps wait a year or two years to, to check, check in. I don't think there's an absolute frequency. It probably depends a little bit on your on, on your environment, but um, surveying is you know pretty cost effective these days with uh, online tools and so forth. So it doesn't need to be a massive thing just to be able to survey your people and get some good results. Excellent. Our conversation will be airing at the end of a very uh, a difficult year for many. Uh, the end of twenty twenty. Uh, in your position, you have advantage uh, the advantage of having seen a variety of organizations who are engaging their staff through pulse surveys and perhaps also through some of the more in-depth looks. Could you take a step back and say, from the big picture that you're seeing, how are we doing as a, as the <clears throat> nonprofit sector when it comes to the well-being of our employees? It's very interesting, um, Melissa, because there was a very interesting um, finding uh, that we got when we ran a, a very wide uh, sort of COVID survey, COVID sort of related survey in April, April, May time. And we didn't only ask about well-being and COVID, we also asked about leadership and engagement. And the findings from that resonated with findings you know, more widely, that engagement had actually increased under COVID. And that what was happening, not in every agencies, but the macro picture, was this was such a big change and such a shock to everybody's sort of systems that leaders often stood up, uh, were more visible, improved their communications, and really demonstrated that they wanted to hear how staff were uh, and, you know, and ensure that their managers were really caring for their staff. They couldn't see them necessarily if they're working at home rather than being in the office. So I think that certainly in the early stages of COVID, as it were, or the, you know, the sort of April, May, June period, the general sense was that engagement had gone up. Uh, and this was, in, this was a global finding as well, I mean, outside the sector. And that illustrates, you know, the, the key point around engagement, essentially, which is that when leaders and managers uh, improve their communications, when they improve their listening, when they demonstrate that they really do care and that they want to, they want to hear and that it really is a two-way conversation, 
And guess what happens? People feel more positive um, and they feel welcomed and they feel looked after and they feel cared for and they feel supported. Um, so that I think was definitely the story. Um, I mean, there are definitely some well-being issues, you know, around IT. Uh, sometimes people's mental well-being has dropped, or for some people, it dropped isolation. Uh, it's quite tough for those balancing work and looking after children who weren't at school and some of those phases in, in the sort of summer term. Obviously, it's difficult to speak completely knowledgeably because all countries, of course, will, will be going through. COVID in different sort of stages and different points. Um, and so definitely some well-being issues uh, as well. And I think uh, some of the data that we picked up, which is that younger people are generally uh, struggling more with their well-being. Um, and in particular, there seems to be a bit of a gender gap as well with women um, having generally lower well-being than, than men too on the WHO5 measure. So those are some of the macro uh, pictures. I think as we enter the, the fall, the autumn, of course, there's a whole range of differentiating, of differential sort of impacts. There are those organisations who are not, whose income hasn't been affected uh, and for whom large scale restructuring and redundancy has not been on the agenda. But then there are those organisations whose income very much has been uh, impacted. They're dependent on events, they're dependent on shops uh, and all those things have had huge uh, uh, impacts and where they may well be at the beginning, the middle or the end of a large scale redundancy process, which of course is always tough. It's tough for those who are leaving, it's tough for those who are staying, um, uh, and it's tough when you don't know, what, when, you know when you're uncertain. Uh, when you're uncertain, you just want to know. So I think that was the initial stage. I think as we move forward into this period of time that we're in now, November, it probably varies out quite a bit by organisation. but. Uh, it was very gratifying to see that despite all the difficulties in April and May, uh, actually the engagement had gone up and that just sort of underlined, I think, for many, um, you know, what the drivers of engagement are. And what I do hope is that this has been a great learning curve for leaders and managers as well, and that they remember these and that they don't just, that they keep those communications up and they keep listening to their people through post surveys or whatever forums uh, as they drive forward and that uh, this doesn't then drop away as either COVID or the COVID arrangements just become normalised or of course as we all hope as, as vaccines begin to start coming through in 2021 and some of the issues begin to be forgotten to, to, to be able to move forward that those lessons are, are then forgotten. Excellent. Could you play a thought experiment with me because I've, I've heard from several people that they hope that COVID forces change in the way we work, how we work. And it's so nice to hear that uh, the silver lining with COVID in many cases has been that the leaders of organizations have opened up and really uh, tried to improve the communications. How would you, if we do the thought experiment and we want to prevent uh, return to normal. We want to keep that uh, momentum locked in. How could we design an approach where it is locked in? Maybe we just have regular engagement surveys once or once a year, or more pulse surveys. But then also the process 
where the information is analyzed and the question comes, oh, why might we be performing here at this level? So it's learning from that, adjusting, iterating. So how would this design look like to keep people engaged, not overwhelm them with a tick the box, but really inspire reflection, learning and evolution when it comes to how staff are supported to do quality effective work? It's a great question. Uh, and in some ways, I think the answer is probably going to be maybe a little bit uh, organization by organization. I think that that those with people responsibilities, HR, you know, senior HR people, um, I think will uh, be key. I, I think in the end, however, it's down to leaders because I think if leaders are authentic about better communications uh, and really caring and listening, then I think that those, you know, that the, then that will continue. What I hope is that some of the mechanisms that organizations have put in place uh, for communications, you know, have, will become institutionalized. Um, I can think of one organization that now has a weekly uh, briefing with their chief executive every Monday. They certainly did, never did that before. But even if people, some people are back in the office in a year's time, why not, why not keep that going uh, if that works? So I, I hope that, that in a sense, COVID has forced some new cultures, some new mechanisms, and that some of those then become institutionalized and not dropped off um, when, quote unquote, things return to normal. But I do think your work in terms of talking about the importance of well-being, demonstrating the importance of well-being and helping organizations understand the well-being of their people within a wider context can, can only help that as well. Excellent. Um, you mentioned that more and more you're being asked to look at diversity, inclusion, respectful workforce. Uh, we found with our Working Well report that um, people experience the work so differently depending on uh, their background. You mentioned gender. Uh, we found in the humanitarian sector, uh, your nationality, your race, uh, your professional status, if you're a professional versus uh, a different kind of status. There's so many different factors that go into how you experience the workplace. And I think uh, you're seeing this become of greater interest. Do you want to say a little bit about how you can go about measuring respectful workplace diversity and inclusion must not be easy. Sure. Well, I, I mean, in some ways, I think some of these things are surprisingly easy, actually. I mean, certainly in terms of diversity and inclusion, I think the simplest thing to do is when you set up your, so when you design your survey, uh, you'll have all the questions that you want to ask about, whether that's engagement or leadership or communications or well-being or whatever the sort of survey content is. But the other part of the questionnaire is going to be the demographics. It's going to be, um, you know, are you a senior manager, a manager or not a manager? Which department are you in? Mm -hmm. uh, what's your role? Um, but crucial to get those personal demographics right. So most organizations will say, will ask about gender identity. Many will ask about age. Um, but why not ask about sexual orientation? What about religion? You know, what about disability? 
what about race and ethnicity? And that when you ask those good demographics, then a very simple analysis is to be able to look at your survey results and to see whether the experiences are the same or different between men and women, between people who have different race ethnicities, between people who are disabled and those who are not disabled, etc. So it's a very interesting, very simple tool to be able to very quickly see, to get some data on the extent to which the different groups uh, see your organization and have a similar experience or very different experiences. You can also, I mean, respectful workplace is, a, is around the whole area of abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, if you like, came out of Me Too. So yes. it's all about the discrimination, the bullying, harassment, the sexual mm -hmm. harassment and so forth. Uh, and often about the processes around that. So did, have you experienced that? Have you witnessed that? If you have, did you report it? If you reported it, what happened? If you didn't report it, why didn't you report it? So all those incredibly important processes uh, are good uh, grounds for exploration. And obviously we've done quite a few of these surveys. And again, you can, it's really insightful to analyze those by demographic as well. You know, we've done surveys where we found, uh, you know, there are quite a lot of differential levels of, of incidence uh, of abuse, depending on your demographic. Uh, it's yeah. higher for people with LGBT, for example, uh, community, uh, higher for women professionals and so forth. So uh, you can get into that. But uh, being able to look at di di diversity and inclusion, uh, engagement surveys are a great tool for that. Um, and in many ways, you can just take your existing survey and just make sure you include the right demographics, a good range of demographics, and then you'll be able to get a readout when you analyze your survey results by those demographics. Excellent. One of the topics that we look at in our initiative is the topic of burnout. And according to the WHO ICD-11, uh, burnout is a workplace syndrome that results from chronic stress that's not well managed. So we, we've heard from a lot of people who have stress because of the things you just mentioned, uh, harassment, bullying, uh, we also have people who are chronically stressed because their workload is difficult to keep up with because perhaps the, the bureaucracy around them is a bit overwhelming. Also because they might have difficult relationships with the boss or colleague, maybe not necessarily a situation of bullying, but it's just a matter of how conflict is managed in a work environment. Um, how do you think this kind of more chronic, mundane <laughs> stress could be measured? Burnout is, a, as you say, a, uh, a particular condition. Uh, and there are, and I can't lay my hand on it right now, there are some questionnaires, actually. There are some burnout questionnaires. Uh, I'm pretty sure we've got access to one. Um, so they can be measured. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that there is a, a, an internationally validated questionnaire for burnout. Um, uh, we haven't actually used it, but I'd love to use it. Uh, we've, there's also something called the KEDS9, which is an exhaustion questionnaire as well, which might also be worth considering. So yeah, these things can be measured. And of course, these things can also be measured. And some of these questionnaires, which I think are highly appropriate to survey, actually have come out of clinical practice. Mm. They've come out of uh, occupational psychologists, psychologists, counselors, wanting tools to assess an individual 
person in front of them who comes to them uh, wanting help. And uh, they are often used at an individual clinical level by clinicians as tools for diagnosing you know, particular uh, conditions. So I think therefore, if we could use some of those in survey instruments, that gives us a very powerful tool for, for, for knowing that we're asking the right questions. Because typically these questions, you know, the WHO5 wellbeing index doesn't say, do you feel you have good well-being? Yes or no, <laughs> you know, which is completely self-assessed. Uh, and you and I might have similar or different. Uh, but it, it asks you, I felt cheerful and good spirits. I felt calm and relaxed. I felt active and vigorous. I woke up feeling fresh and rested. My daily life has been filled with things that interest me. So much more general things. And then it asks you to say the extent to which those are the case all the time, none of the kind or in between. So it's much more objective uh, in terms of people answering questions on, you know, on, on a much more objective basis. So yes, guess, these, things, yeah. these, things, these things can be measured. That's the, that's the kind of good news. You have to build in a, a variability for people who have small children, babies that are waking up. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't wake up fresh. No, well, uh, I think that's certainly true. Certainly true. <laughs> um, my last thought experiment before we close, the initiative that we're working on with the CHS Alliance to cultivate caring, compassionate aid organizations. Ultimately, our vision, looking at over several period of years, is that we want to support the cultivation of caring, compassionate cultures in organizations that are under extreme stress right now, but I've always been because they're dealing with humanitarian circumstances. There's a lot of variability. There's funding constraints. There's all kinds of challenges built into what aid organizations are doing. And we feel it's important to create those cultures where the people working in those organizations feel supported so that they can thrive and do very effective work. So the final thought experiment for you is, do you think that's possible to start something where we measure, we begin measuring now and can do this iterative process where we learn every year or wh whatever the period is, but we, we're measuring how the culture is evolving and we're learning from that and we're improving how we deal with that. Do you think that's within the realm of possibilities? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of the goal, uh, caring, compassionate community, you know, organizations, which is, which is, which is a great, a great um, lens. I think obviously you'll want to be share, sharing, you know, what's good practice and how, what organizations are doing to do that. But I do think a measurement tool uh, would be helpful and since this is all about, you know, how, how, how the agency staff are feeling, what, you know, it couldn't be better than actually asking them. So I think developing a, a survey tool which asks staff the questions that you want to cover, you know, about their well-being, about their culture or whatever, um, but using it on a consistent basis with a range of organisations could be, I think, very powerful. And um, I think you could use it across organizations and I think you could use it over time as well. Um, and possibly do a sort of, as you say, a sort of state of the sector uh, report. I think it would also be good to add into it your sense of good practice, uh, what people are looking for. 
and then you could give people uh, you know, agencies that take part um, you know a very useful diagnostic uh, which says well you, you, you'll sign up to this program here are your own survey results here are your own survey results in relation to the 53 agencies who also took part this year you might like to reflect on that and we're inviting you to you know a conference you know or a learning session uh, to share results understand the results and help connecting to those people who you know who are also working in the sector uh, it's also the case that the that the results may well be very varied within organizations as is as as well as between organizations and it might also be very helpful for those agencies to understand where within their agencies are the particular um, problem areas and which indeed uh, where some of the areas where the well-being is much much better so there's a lot to be learned within organizations as well um, as well as between organizations so yes i think that could be a powerful tool that's exactly what i wanted to hear thank you <laughs> Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation, Roger. But before we close, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? No, not at all. I, I mean, I think thank you for the invitation. Uh, I think your goals and what you're trying to achieve is very exciting. Uh, and if we could be contribute or be part of that, we'd love to. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Roger Perry. And uh, best of luck to you as we get through the end of a very, very tough year, but one filled with silver linings. Great. Well, and to you too, Melissa. Uh, very nice to link up with you and delighted to have another catch up uh, whenever you wish. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Roger Perry of Agenda Consulting. This is Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. The show is edited by Ziada Abayid. If you enjoyed the show, you can help us in three ways. First, you can share it with your people. Second, you can leave us a review to help others find us. And third, you can make suggestions for a future episode by emailing us at compassionateorg at chsalliance.org. We're open to your feedback and we're on the lookout for examples of good practice in the sector. We will be back soon with another show exploring care and compassion and aid and development. Till then, take care and be compassionate with yourself.